I am so proud to be working with Kills to bring you this season of Rain with Josh Smith. I created Rain to empower communities everywhere and start important conversations about equality, and Kills have been doing exactly that for more than 170 years. Not only do Kills make you feel like your best self with their award-winning apothecary skincare products, but they also support local communities through charity partnerships, literally changing lives. And in the spirit of feeling like our best selves, Kills have just added a new cream formulation of their best-selling midnight recovery oil. And trust me when I say you need this in your life. Say hello to the Midnight Recovery Omega Rich Cloud Cream, which will not only help your skin look plumped, nourished, and radiant, it will also empower you to feel fabulous and take on absolutely anything. It's available now at your nearest Kill store or on kills.co.uk. Hey, I'm Josh Smith and welcome to Rain. And I'm so glad you're here, babes. This podcast is all about opening up, having important conversations and celebrating successes, as well as overcoming obstacles to reign over our own lives. I love to chat to people and I always find things in these conversations to take away and use in my own life. So I really hope you'll find the same as well. Welcome to Rain. today's episode, we're joined by the epic actress Mackenzie Davis. Mackenzie has a CV most actors would kill for. She starred in huge blockbuster movies like The Terminator and the Blade Runner franchises and The Martian with the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ryan Gosling and Matt Damon. And she's also a cult fave in the hits like Tully alongside Charlize Theron, The Happiest Season with Kirsten Stewart as well as Black Mirror. I caught up with Mackenzie after taking on one of the most intense roles of her entire career in the TV show Station Eleven. It's based on the best-selling book of the same name and follows Kirsten, a child actress who survives a pandemic flu that wipes out 99% of the world's population. It's dark, but you're going to be as obsessed as I was. In this episode, Mackenzie talks about how her relationship with mental health changed both during and after the real-life pandemic something we can all relate to and share some incredible observations on the boundaries between soulmate friendships and relationships. Mackenzie is basically totally philosophical and listening to her really reframe my thoughts and approaches to those topics and so much more. So I hope this episode invites you to challenge your outlook in places where it's needed. Crowns at the ready, let's rain. Hello, Mackenzie. How are you? I'm good, Josh. How are you? I'm so good. Uh, mainly because I'm so... I start every podcast being like, oh my God, I'm so excited to talk to the person because I'm so obsessed with the show. But like literally, Station Eleven is exceptional television. You must be so proud of it. It's just so addictive from start to finish, the twists, the turns the plot twist, the characters, like the performances, it's just incredible. Because like Kirsten is such an incredible character and she is, in the terms of Destiny's Child themselves, she's a survivor. <laughs> Literally mm, mm-hmm, such a mm-hmm. survivor. <laughs> what attracted you to playing her in the first place? I think with Kirsten, it was the same thing that sort of attracted to me the show in general, which was that it was really unplaceable and unpin downable. It was, you know, I mean, the show is this 
pandemic show that's about hope. It's like an apocalyptic show that's super lush and green and verdant and about like rebirth. Um, all of the sort of cultural cues we have for these sorts of shows are the opposite of what's being done in Station Eleven, which I, I loved. And I think Kirsten as well. I mean, she's this hero character with, you know, these sort of cornerstones of violence and anger in her in her personality and in her life. And I think in another show or another character, that would be it. It would be this really sort of tropey, like strong female character. But in equal doses, she has so much sensitivity and emotion and she's an actor and she uses her grief and her trauma and her emotions with as much like force and power as she does her knives. And there's just this, I just haven't seen a character like her before that kind of resists um, like easy reductive categorization. Mm. How amazing was that to, because we live in a world of stereotypes, right? And categorizing people. How amazing was it to yeah. play a character that you couldn't necessarily categorize in the way that society tries to categorize every single person we come into contact with every single day? Um, I mean, it was uh, that that part was great. I think I struggled sometimes even while admiring that about the character and it being the thing I was attracted to. I mean, she was really unknowable a lot of the times, like a lot of decisions that she makes, I found like really illogical sometimes mm. and having to sort of give yourself over to the logic of an erratic person and not fully understanding it as a math problem going into it was really like a, a personal challenge for me because I, that's not normally how I work and I had to sort of be, um, quite open to being guided by faith with her because she's she doesn't make the decisions you think she would make and her loyalties shift and I don't know she's operating in this this sort of world that's governed by faith in this you know in our world it's a comic book but it is does have this sort of religious quality um that guides a lot of her decisions and is kind of hard to get inside sometimes so she was like endlessly fascinating for me, but also frustrating. What was the most testing part of the process in order to get into that psyche? Because it looks like it was such a physical demanding and mentally demanding role as well. Yeah, I think the circumstances in which we filmed, I mean, it was January of 2021 to July of 2021. We just finished our first year of a pandemic. We were entering the second year. We went to Toronto to film and we were under full lockdown and it was winter until like May. We couldn't see anybody. You know, we'd go to work and be around a hundred people, but you couldn't take your masks off. You couldn't connect with people. Then you'd go home and you really couldn't socialize. So it was just this really both like quite isolating and, and sort of strenuous in that way. And also, um, it was like performing a version of a thing we just went through and the rest of the world was waking up and we were going backwards to tell the story about the thing that everybody was kind of, I mean, the rest of the world, some places, America, England, like we're, we're having this, um, 
kind of spring awakening and we were just going further and further underground. And I think that was really hard for a lot of us, even though um, it provided a place to like explore grief. It was also um, full of sort of sadness and loneliness at times. In those pockets of that loneliness, when you literally had to sit with yourself, I guess in so many ways that so many people have done during the pandemic, like we've spent more times with ourselves, more times with our thoughts, more times reflecting on who we are and facing ourselves in the mirror. What did you kind of learn about yourself in those pockets and those moments? Uh, (laughs) For the first year of the pandemic, I feel like I was kind of uh, fine in probably not a great way, like not really absorbing the enormity of everything and like a bit manic. And then the second year shooting Station Eleven and all last year just felt like the weight of the enormous change and the things that we had collectively lost and that I've lost like really kind of um, hit me like a freight train. And... Yeah, and then now I kind of feel like I'm, like, piecing it together a bit. Like, I had, like, mania and then depression, and then now it's, like, this sort of understanding or I'm trying to... I don't have, like, a clean answer, but it's been um, intense. (laughs) One of the most amazing things, though, about this very difficult time that we live through is that now people are talking about mental health like we are right now in new ways and the kind of stigma around talking about it has alleviated in particular how do you think your own relationship with your mental health has changed and developed through your life and finding a language to be able to talk about it um i think in much the way that we just spoke about it like it comes up all the time in a in a way that is both acceptable. It's nothing that I I would have shied away from in the past, but I also think I probably wasn't investigating myself in the way that I've been forced to in the past couple of years Um, and addressing things with an honesty that feels very new. Um, Yeah, but I mean, conversations with friends about, you know, antidepressants, therapy, like experimental dream, like everybody is both concerned and consumed by their mental health in a way that feels really positive. Like there sounds something a little bit self-involved about always talking about um, what's going on in your brain. But um, yeah, I don't know. I had like a business meeting the other day with somebody and I mentioned that I was, you know, feeling a certain way and and this very new person in my life called me right afterwards and was like hey I just wanted to check in and you know and let you know and like you know ask me how I was feeling and I described this sort of day that I was having and and he was like I think a lot of people are feeling that right now and just these these avenues for connection with you know people outside the most sacred inner circle um it's it's really it's really beautiful it's really great (laughs) (laughs) no that is such a positive way of looking at it and I totally agree with that and what is so interesting about the times we're living in now is it's a very formative time for who we are as people and station 11 is all Mm -hmm. about 
the stories and the people that we carry with us that shape our identity. And like Kirsten always has these like flashbacks to who she was, who she's, who the decisions she's made at different times. And it's a very interesting way of showing a character and the weight of their identity that they're bringing with them and who it's made them who they are today. Yeah. What do you think in your own life have been some turning points in establishing and understanding and also shaping your identity and who you are. I was a very confident five-year-old and had like no um, like barrier between me and the world. I, I was like really whole and complete. And I feel like the process of aging has just been like, you like, sort of dismantling that completeness, investigating all the parts and then putting it all together again. And then you'll have another experience that dismantling, and dismantling isn't the negative. It's not a negative thing. It's just like this awareness of yourself, I guess is not the main character <laughs> that like you are somebody who is affected by and affecting people all the time to various degrees of consciousness. Um, and then you'll like click in with how much you are affected by the world around you and how much you affect the world around you. And I feel like that's a dismantling. And then you investigate like who you are, who you, who you think you are, how you're affecting people, how you think you're affecting people, and then sort of put it back together again. And then there'll be another sort of cleavage point where you do that all again. Um, which sounds really chaotic, but <laughs> I, I feel that that's sort of been my path and, and the, the like points of punctuation are, you know, the, much like the people who affect you for the rest of your life without really them knowing the impact that they had. They can just be these meaningless points where like everything comes into focus and then you need to sort of step back for a second. That is so interesting because the other day I was talking to one of my friends about this, the concept of like self-love and our journey with self-love. And mm -hmm. she was saying kind of self-love is basically the journey through adulthood to try and get back to the place that you were when you were a kid and you just saw everything at face value and you were confident and happy and you weren't so scared of the world and what happens around you. So I found that so interesting yeah. when you think back to that five-year-old you, to the person you are now, it's kind of like you're just trying to, we're all trying to return to that kind of state in a way, aren't we? Kind of, but my the five-year-old me was a dick. Like the five-year-old me was the only <laughs> sort of person in the world. I feel like the challenge is accepting that you are one of billions and in everybody's life that you care about, the supporting character in their life while still maintaining a sense of like identity and importance around your own, like keeping your identity whole and, and like fluid, but sort of intact, like a, a semi-permeable membrane, but also accepting that you're not the main character of the story. I don't know. There that, like that tension I find really interesting. Um, because I think a healthy ego kind of demands that that like you have some primacy in the world, um, mm. but like a, a healthy ego also accepts that you are kind of just one of many, and and um, nobody is thinking about you as much as you're thinking about yourself. That is so true, and it's all that conversation that everyone always like. Oh, I've, I'm giving main character energy, and I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> You don't yeah. always have to be the main character in 
every single given situation right. Oh, it's a terrible quality. <laughs> Rain and Kills are both about empowering you to feel like your best self. And Kills's new Midnight Recovery Omega Rich Cloud Cream does exactly that. It's rich in omegas three and six, which help replenish and rejuvenate skin. And with it only taking seven nights to younger looking skin, I'll race you to that nearest Kill store, or you can shop on kills.co.uk. I love that in Station Eleven, how protective Kirsten is of her community. Like, I mean, she's extremely mm-hmm. protective of her community to like, <laughs> like I'm not a, a about to go out and stab people to try and protect my community like she does at different points. But like, it's so incredible to have a show that reflects very much on a chosen family. Yeah. Who in your own life has been kind of your chosen family and who's kind of shaped you in in a community aspect? I... I think because I've moved around a lot, but like I lived in Vancouver my whole adolescence. And then since I, I went to university in Montreal and then moved to New York and then moved to LA and then moved to New York and then moved to LA and then moved to London and have worked a bunch all over the place. I've had this sort of, um, my community is quite uh, fractured in a way, but but it, I, I love it so much. I have like, a best friend in New York, like my soulmate in New York. And I have a soulmate in London and my best friend since I was 16 years old lives in Berlin. And we're still, we went to college together and we're roommates and we've, you know, met in Italy when we were 16 and have stayed like twins until, you know, we're 34 now. Um, And rather than this sort of like, squad of people in one city or this unified thing. I have these like people, these enduring, long, really important relationships um, that have kept me whole and sane. And we've, you know, flown all over the world. Whenever I'm working, they'll fly in and come and hang out. Like there's this really nice continuity um, in, I guess, my my chosen family, but it's it's pretty, unfixed which i i used to feel really sad about like i wanted um i wanted what taylor swift had i wanted a a, this sort of like (laughs) collection of very visible friends that were always together and then the older i've gotten the like enduring relationships have meant so much to me that i i have all these people in disparate locations but like i can go to many cities in the world and have like a best friend or or a family member. It's so interesting that because friendships and the way you approach them change so much through your whole life. And I feel like I'm getting to a point in friendships, like I'm in my early thirties too, where you get to this point where you're like, Oh, I'm quite happy for them to be a bit more malleable. I don't need to be like surrounded by these people all the time to feel like they're still my friends. It's, it can be a separate, you can still be friends with someone who lives a nine hour flight away and you can still have just as much of a close yeah. relationship. And it's not so defined by this old school idea that you must be with these same people. You must be the Taylor Swift with the with the girls that like you're saying, like surrounding you. I, I, I fantasized about that idea when I was younger. I, But I, yeah, you know, would, would that we were all so lucky. But I, I have a different sort of arrangement. Um, but I also think it's interesting, our generation, uh, 
was having kids and families so much later. I was speaking with a friend about this, that like our friends have become so primary in our lives, sometimes in a Mm. difficult way where you'll like meet somebody. I mean, I've had this experience and, and the friend I was talking to definitely has had this experience who's like wonderful and great, but they don't quite fit into the, this like family that you've chosen and built. And it's something that I think our parents really didn't have to deal with because like the pursuit was the family, the marriage, the children, um, and like sort of consolidating this union. And for us, we spent, or a lot of people in our generation, I think have spent so much time cultivating this really meaningful group of like soulmate friends that introducing a romantic partner into it is like quite difficult because they have to match like how important these people are to you. It's it's like a really new predicament. Oh my God. Like it's so interesting that predicament, like you're saying of our generation where we've got this such intense friendships. It's very hard to re-navigate them at times, especially when it's involving a new romantic partner. Yeah, yeah. And not even the time thing, just like you've spent... 15 or however many years cultivating these really intense relationships. And then, I don't know, I've certainly expected in the past, like a new person to just be like, why don't you get it? Why don't you fit in with us immediately? Like this is, which is so insane. But um, but yeah, they've just become like this sort of replacement relationships for a, a, what would have been a family in the past. Sorry, that sounded really heavy when I finished it. I don't mean that at all. No, that like, was... I mean this is a beautiful thing, but this like new predicament. I love that predicament. And one of the things like I find interesting about our generation in particular, and this is something I was thinking about when I watched the show, and when Kirsten had to explain to fellow survivor Alex like what a phone was, because they don't use phones anymore, basically. They don't have yeah. like satellite navigation on their phones. And I was sat there thinking, oh my God, like we are one of the last generations to know what it was like. Bef- like we are a very interesting generation. I know. We were so obsessed with the internet when it came and phones and technology, but we also remember what it was like beforehand. We remember things like dial up internet and literally having to be like, mom, get off the phone. And, and, a computer room. Sand, and a computer room and like internet cafes yeah. and all this weird stuff. I, I was thinking about, um, the fact that you don't have social media publicly, is that kind of liberating for you not to have that? And does it, do you feel like you don't sort of succumb to that sort of social media pressure that so many people do? Because I have a friend who doesn't have social media at all, never had it. And she seems like one of the Mm -hmm. most confident people I've ever met. And it's because she doesn't have that insane pressure all the time of scrolling through and seeing people's lives constantly and then comparing them and those comparison traps. Yeah. It adds nothing to your life. <laughs> I do like some like house design things sometimes, but it is one of the only things that exclusively like steals from you in every way. Um, for for me, I think a lot of people have found amazing community. Mm. My experience of it is just like, I do not use it in a healthy or good way and it doesn't add anything to my life. Um, And yet I'm so attracted to it. My friend just told me, I'm so embarrassed. He was like, oh, I saw you joined Instagram again. I'm like, no, I didn't. Why do you think that? He's like, oh, I got an email from you. Because the other night I was home and I was like, 
maybe I'll set up an Instagram account. Um, I got an email as did everyone in your contact list that you'd set up this new Instagram. And it was like, whatever name I'd made up for myself. Uh, it was just so embarrassing to think of like me late night, like toying around on the computer being like, Oh, maybe I will have an Instagram. Maybe it's good. And then not following through, but that like brief moment alerting everybody in my contact book, but I had a, I was just so, and it's like a fake name. It's just so dorky. Um, but yeah, it really does have a pull because I don't like it. There's no question about it. And I still <laughs> make new profiles. I love it. Just living out these different new identities yeah. on Instagram and then people finding you out. I know. It's just so embarrassing. You should just be consistent with these things, <laughs> Mackenzie. Like, it's, you are so incredible in this show, as I've said about 20 million times in this interview already. But it's so incredible to see you step into your power on screen in this amazing way across this amazing show. But I think sometimes one of the things about success and failure is that you see these moments where someone gets this amazing part of their life, which is so incredible. You're achieving amazing things. Everyone's talking about the role. They don't see the struggles and the resilience that you've had to really delve into to get to that place is there ever a time Mm -hmm. in your career where you've really questioned yourself and really had to push yourself to keep going um I think right when I started I like graduated from theater school and I had was 24 which is very very young but you know in the in the world of acting felt like crazy that I'd just been in school for like six years like university and then theater school and had never had a job and I just was feeling very low really really depressed at the time and uh and really questioned what I was doing and if I was just an enormous failure but because of that period and then I started working I've always had this sort of or for a lot of my career, this kind of like shock that I got to even audition for great things or even be a part of these things. I mean, I wouldn't do just anything, but I was, it really felt like something that wasn't going to happen. And then it did. And I got to work and I got to pay my rent. And then I, you know, got to work again and again. And that was so thrilling for me that I always really, um, I don't know. I've been like very chill about rejection um, because whoever they cast, I could either understand it from a like financial, like sort of the economy of making movies way, or uh, we were so different that it's like, well, if they want that person, then of course they wouldn't want me because that's a completely different thing. Or I don't know, just accepting sometimes that somebody's better for a role than I am. I can, I can like divorce myself from that. Um, But I think more of the challenge is not like tying too much of your self-worth to any moments of like success so that like the peaks and valleys aren't marking the like the landscape of your life. But you can kind of find a through line of like, I don't know, um, it's not like not hopefulness, (laughs) but that like you're motivated by something other than these, the sort of huge adrenaline rush of getting a role or, you know, there's all these sequences that happen that early in my career are so like 
feel so good to to get the role and then it's announced that the role that you got the role and then people call you about getting the role and then you shoot the role and then the thing comes out and then you get to talk about it again and it is like kind of social media stuff where you get these sort of endorphin highs from people applauding you um and i think that's really um i think it's really important to divorce yourself from that as quickly as possible because it's so fleeting and it's just like anything you're it's only interesting in the one moment and if you attach too much of your identity to it then you go down with it when everybody moves on i think the whole like the main part about success and failure is that you're never going to find true success if you so attach yourself to these external things right it needs to come from an internal place yeah yeah and like you know understanding that you kind of make your own bed as well. Like there's this, I wonder if this is like not true, um, but is, has just become part of a lore. But I really think that I saw an interview with Judy Dench years and years ago, uh, where she was like 75 and somebody was asking her about what the hardest part of being an actor was. And she said something along the lines of like, every job feels like it's your last job. You never know when the next job is coming. And like, on the one hand, that's harrowing because, wow, you just are constantly living in this state of suspense until you're 75 and a dame and, like, you know, an internationally respected, like, cinema royalty. Um, but on the other hand, it's like, all right, well, that's the sort of carny life that we chose. And rather than resisting it and thinking that there's an end to this, like, uncertainty, sort of enjoying how uncertainty feels and like sitting in moments of, um, I don't know, discomfort and letting those moments of discomfort be as valuable as moments of comfort. It's like a weird, uh, thing that I have not mastered, but this sort of meditation of, you know, even if I'm really sad or really, um, I don't know, lost or something, knowing that like, well, you'll never, feel this exact thing in this moment in this space again probably so like how do you punctuate this feeling where it feels uh the intensity is at least pleasurable even if the feeling is shitty (laughs) (laughs) that's so true because nothing in life is constant like how you feel now is not how you're going to feel next week it's not going to how you're going to feel in two weeks time it's it's everything in life is transient isn't it? And you're always going through these transient moments. So the work is to try and get to a place where you feel comfortable in uncertainty because you know what, like nothing's certain. We're always literally trying to grab onto these certainties that just don't exist. I also have to say like, I have my own experiences with depression and that there's a limit to that sometimes. So I don't want to make it sound like with the right attitude, anything can be fine. But I I have found it like a coping mechanism at times. I remember being in Toronto in the winter and being like really sad for some reason one day. And I think I I worked a night shoot and was like really tired and, and, you know, it was well below freezing and I was wearing nothing outside. Like just one of these things that was really, really intense. And then the next day walking down the street and just like crying, walking down the street 
but kind of thinking how special it was to be in Toronto during a pandemic, shooting a show about a pandemic, tired from like working all night, like all of these factors as much as they were sort of exhausting me and, and like really sort of stripping me raw. At least they were like (laughs) distinct, you know, at least they were like the most intense version of all those feelings. And it felt like, well, you'll probably never be in this exact situation again. So you may as well enjoy like how intense it is. Um, But man, that's doesn't always work. It's a progress. It's a progress and it's a process. It's the journey, (laughs) not the destination. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you just want to get to the destination already. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I know. So I would love to get there. It'd be so nice to just get to the destination for once. Yeah, (laughs) without doing all this really intense work to get there. Yeah, I've actually been on the train for like a long time. So if we could go, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of being on the train, I can't believe it, but we've already come to the end of the episode, babe. Oh my God. And (laughs) Love that little accent there. (laughs) Sorry, I have to stop doing that. I have the worst habit now that I, I mean, I do it all the time, but I live here and I just answer people like in their own voice and it's, I would hate it if somebody did that to me and I can't help it because it's so fun. But um, thank you for having me. I, I, I love it. So you could do it all the time to me, anytime. But we always end on one final question and that is, Mackenzie, in the reign of your life, what is the one rule you will always live by? Um, I knew you were going to ask this, so I thought about it beforehand. <laughs> and the true answer, there's like the, the what's your mantra, what's your motto answer, which I don't have and would be bullshit for me to make up. But the rule that my life is actually dominated by is don't be late. <laughs> my mom like instilled it in me as an infant to never be late. And it uh, truly dominates my life. And I uh, have so much anxiety around ever being late to anything for anybody. Um, So that's the true answer of the rule that I live by. Um, But I'd love to find a new one. So if you have any suggestions, I'll call (laughs) that. I'll send them your way. I mean, as someone who is late for literally every single thing in my life this is something that maybe i should take away from this episode is don't be late and maybe that is the rule that you will always live by in the reign of your life (laughs) going forward this reign is going to be on time and i'm going to get to those destinations on time for once good well i'm glad i can sort of infect somebody else with this because it's been hell (laughs) Well, thank you so much, babe. Honestly, it's been great talking to you and so many stunning nuggets of wisdom in there. And like, just, it's so interesting. (laughs) That is the best impression I've ever heard of me ever. Oh. I have to, okay, go on. Um, No, no, it's been so nice. Thank you so much for joining me for another amazing episode of Rain. I really hope you found something to take away from this episode. And if you have, let me know. You can always get me on socials at Josh Smith Hosts. I love to hear from you. 
And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcasts from. And more importantly, please share this with someone you think needs to hear it. Let's get those convos going and I'll see you next time.